I'm Jason Klom, and this is Comedy on Vinyl. Not insane or anything you want to. The album, the album. Nope, that's what I just said. The artist, the Firesign Theater. My guests this week, Phil Proctor and Taylor Jessen, have returned. Thank you, gentlemen. Yo, yo, yo. Nice to be back. Nice to be here. Nice to be anywhere. As they say, somebody my age, right? (laughs) (laughs) So this album is um, an interesting mix of live and studio recording stuff. Um, I couldn't make sense of what Wikipedia wanted to tell me about why it is mixed this way and why it led to some possible acrimony why don't you tell me a bit phil about how this came about where you were at where fire sign was at this point it's a mixed up album mm-hmm. and it was a very mixed up time for the partnership uh phil austin had just gotten a divorce from his wonderful wife anna lee who had gone off to perform naked uh in the in the show Calcutta, Cal- calcutta which in French is what an ass you have, and uh, and Peter Bergman, I think, had had an affair with her up in his land in Mendocino, <clears throat> and uh, uh, and 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 Phil and I had to meet the obligation of one more album under a Columbia contract, and so under these circumstances, <clears throat> we uh, we did the best we could to put out something that, you know, would satisfy our contract and represent uh, what Firesign was up to at the moment. Up to no good, of course, as usual. (laughs) And so in a sense, uh, I always say Not Insane was absolutely our most insane album. Mm -hmm. Okay. And uh, I can't even remember. Well, I don't remember anything anyway, but I can't remember exactly what what we decided, Phil and I, would be the the narrative that held the album together. And I think that we decided it didn't matter. (laughs) But let's just put it all together and see what happens, like a witch's brew, you know. Uh, But I do remember it was always fun working with the late, great Phil Austin. And... You know, and so we had a very good time uh, putting the album together, such as it was. And we did have a, a live recording of uh, Anything You Want To, which at that point was called, I don't know what, The, the Count of Monte Cristo? That, yeah, Count of Monte Cristo. Yeah, that piece <clears throat> had gone through so many transmogrifications in performance mm-hmm. uh, that when it finally became an album of its own, after it, it was a, a, a broadcast on, I think, National Public Radio uh, called Anything You Want to, Shakespeare's Lost Comedy. Yeah. Uh, you know, that the, the process of getting to that point, you can hear on the Not Insane album, because you hear an earlier iteration of the, that piece, which we did so many times, so many places, in so many different ways. Yeah. So, so that's all I can remember. Goodbye. <laughs> that was great. Well, let me fill you in on the rest. So first the earth cooled, then Firesign Theater formed. And after then there the was this turtle. There was this turtle. Yep. And then there was an incest joke. And, and he, was walking. <laughs> he was walking. He was walking. He was the biggest catfish you ever saw. So, so like the, one, of the, one of the major uh, building blocks of the album is this live show 
the Martian Space Party, uh-huh. which was the apotheosis of uh, Firesign's uh, third and last radio show of the early 70s, the Let's Eat uh, series. Okay. Excuse um, me, I just have to tell you, your eyes are completely obliterated. Can you, there, you know, put your face in there. <laughs> oh, still, I see nothing but nothing but that beard. And it this scares is a, this me. Is, this is the French way of doing music videos, no tops of the head. So we'll, you know, we'll continue. No, okay. you, yeah, no that's better. 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 We can it, see my it, whole face now. No, it looks, like, it looks like an episode from The Masked Singer. <laughs> okay. All right, good. I can see you now. All right, so, very good. Yeah, carry on because you are stimulating my memory cells. So they did this. They, they did their, their show, Let's Eat, on KPFK between November of 71 and February of 72. And the momentum was to do something. And they had a really good archive of bits from Let's Eat that were really funny. And so they put together a a script for this 90 minute live performance, which they performed at, it was Strange Hall, right, Phil? I didn't find performance on Apple Music. Well, see, she can't help me now. <laughs> well, thought, screw I Siri, Apple. I thought Siri could help me, but fuck you, Siri. <laughs> uh, here's what I remember. I remember that the Martian Space Party was done as a documentary-style fundraiser for KPFK's new building, and we did it in the unfinished new building okay now mm-hmm. if we if we had performed it in another iteration at strange hall i can't imagine a better place for for it to have you know first come to life <laughs> so but I, I don't remember that hall at hall okay i we, we did so many performances uh, all over uh, southern california at that time, mm-hmm. and not to mention all of the uh, performances, the new shows we did at the Ashgrove, but I'm not supposed to mention that. So <laughs> again, it's all it's all a horrible blur. And you know, now I'm getting seasick because you're walking around on the ship. And, <laughs> oh, stop. I'm gonna throw up. Oh, <laughs> luckily I have, I just got my new uh, laser, Jewish uh, laser uh, satellite pin. Okay, <laughs> so I'm now official, officially a part of of the conspiracy. You're officially a part of the Jewish laser demolition mission. Yes, I am. I love it. I am. Fantastic. I've been on the waiting list for years. Oh, well. Uh, I'm not going to say anything because if I do, I'll have to kill you. Yeah, That's exactly. Right. All right. Well, the, the what was what was kind of what's amazing to me about this performance uh, that they did for Martian Space Party is that there was so much love and expectation of there being this amazing product from Firesign that Firesign convinced Columbia to record the whole thing in a track from a truck outside. That's oh, wow. right. Um, it was very much intended uh, to be not just a documentary film, but the next album, and. Yeah. Um, it was it's full of hilarious bits Mm -hmm. maybe they don't all make cohere into a narrative but Mm -hmm. the bits that are in it are amazing i mean if you buy duke of madness motors you can hear the unedited original show and all of the performances in it some of the sketches just kill 
I mean, the Bird of Prey motors. Yes, I will stand upon my head until, until this bird, bird is dead. dead at, at the Bird of Prey, Bird of Prey, prey garage. garage. <laughs> Get a lube <laughs> job at Edgar Allan Poe. That's right. Yeah, there is some great stuff. And by the way, it was. Uh, I said it was a documentary because it was captured on film by our dear friend Steve Gilmore, mm -hmm. and 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 was released in major motion picture theaters. Uh, I think along with uh, everything you know is wrong. Okay, it's also made into a film. Yeah, later it did tour with everything you know is wrong. In '72, it toured with Reefer Madness. It was That's right. That's right. Film. Yeah, I have a poster in my bathroom, which is yeah, always yeah. a good place to put. A poster about Reaper Madness, but sure, and sure. The, the audience loved it. Everybody was having a every, yeah. everybody just died for that show. It was so great. Now, Ooh. if I can channel David Osman for a moment, I know what he would want me to mention, which is that he, as far as he was concerned, the through line for this thing was that there was a robot called Walter. Mm -hmm. Yep, Walter. That's right. Walter was a robot that was an all-seeing eye, maybe a satellite. And this was going to be the thread. This was the thread that I think he saw in the album was that Walter was watching and listening to everything. You can kind of hear that in the first couple of minutes of the show because it's making lots of uh, weird uh, ethereal noises. Yeah. It. So it does kind of have, you could, you could force that through line on it, but um, you're not the only one to have been confused by listening to it for the first time. Sure. Yeah, and and again, I do not remember. Uh, Walter was also an homage to Walter Concrete. All right, <laughs> that's right. The great, uh, 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 the the greatest newsman of of our time, of course. And and I don't remember, I don't remember writing anything for this, and I don't remember David's participation at all. You know, I'm telling you, it's. Uh, the Firesign Theater, one of the things that was so much fun about it was that during the 50 plus years that we all collaborated together, we were kind of egoless. And uh, as a result, everybody would put, would, would put their best efforts into the creation of whatever it was we were working on. Mm -hmm. And then we'd go on to something else. You know, uh, and, and the opportunity to put these things out like unidentified flying objects, flying saucers into the, uh, the ether and see if anybody spotted them, you know, uh, was was a remarkably real kind of success for us. You know, our success was absolutely fan based. Yeah. And, and that's what fanned our flame of the Firesign Theater. So, again. We were rewarded, uh, as Taylor says, by uh, the enthusiastic participation of our audiences. Yeah, and, and that's one thing that you definitely can get from some of the live segments oh, yeah. of the of the album. Yeah. And this yeah. was this 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 was obviously this was a big disappointment for the record company and maybe for the fans, but this was in no way the end of Fire Signs. Uh, you know, popularity, you know, two years after this album came out, they sold out Carnegie Hall. Uh, they kept wow. making good material. 
I mean, for the year after this album came out, they made mm-hmm. material as separate, you know, groups and pairs and individuals. Yeah. But then they came back together and made two amazing albums, and they toured and uh, sold out everywhere they went. So yeah. this wasn't even the peak of their popularity. This was, uh, this they were their popularity was still rising at this point. Yeah, I, I think it was a a pause in yeah. our popularity. <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> you guys needed a break. You really, oh, yeah. oh, you had been like living together and working together for at least four years solid, I'm sure. Yep. Sleeping with one another's wives. Sure. Right? You know. <laughs> Always uh, such a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. And was and was the suicide, Bergman's girlfriend's suicide during this period? Oh, oh my God. God. I think that, I think that was in like uh, spring of 71, right before you did Bozos. Wow. So that was that must have been super unpleasant. Yeah, we well, it was what it was. We were <clears throat> writing at Phil Austin's place. Yeah, that's right. He wasn't divorced yet, but his <laughs> Anna Lee was unhappy, and I remember she would she'd be in the kitchen cooking like a witch. I mean, she'd be putting cooking something that was, you know, like lizard based or something, <laughs> and, and and we just knew that there was a tension going on there. That was finally resolved, you know, when she got on her broom and flew away. <clears throat> but uh, the fact is that at that time, Bergman was living in a Japanese-style paper house up the hill in, in, on Echo Park, was it? Echo Park? Echo Park? Uh, Los Feliz, the <laughs> Los Feliz area, mm-hmm. right? And uh, and and he and we all u- used to convene at Austin's. For our writing sessions, which were really some of the most creative sessions we had. That was when Phil and I <clears throat> focused our attention on building the little miniature houses that, that was used in the documentary. Everybody, mm-hmm. if you buy the DVD, you can see a great stills gallery of the guys putting together the miniature village uh, <laughs> yeah, for, right, for, for the film. Uh, for Godzilla to destroy. Yes. That's right. Uh, and, <clears throat> pardon me. And during that time, uh, Bergman reconnected with an old girlfriend of his who had just come back from Vietnam where she was a journalist and it so deeply affected her psyche Oof. that she took she overdosed herself on pills oh, wow. and died in Bergman's arms in the little paper house mm. you know mm-hmm. I mean you know come on what a history what yeah. you know what a story in, in my book where's my fortune cookie I only touch briefly, really, on on the the trauma of Firesign Theater, because that's not really what the book is about. And we had just lost Peter, mm-hmm. so I wanted to make an homage to him. But in, in talking to you, Jason, uh, over the years about these things, I think it's only fair to 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 discuss to pull the curtain back. Sure. from some of the things that we went through because as everybody has always said <clears throat> a rock and roll band could break up or they could always hire another drummer mm-hmm. but we didn't have that luxury Mm-mm. it was the four of us the, the four musketeers and the fifth crazy guy you know <laughs> who demanded that we keep working and and so uh everything that happened to us personally during that time was part of the was was put into the work, thrown into the cauldron. Yeah. Uh, 
I was I got married around that time to my first wife Sheila Wells, and I was living I think I think around that time seventy one right. Mm-hmm. You say is that when we seventy uh, two? Yeah, this came out in seventy two. So, but I would yeah, imagine seventy. I think I was with with uh, Sheila then, uh, and that was fascinating because uh, it opened a whole different kind of Hollywood to me. She, my first wife, knew everybody. Mm-hmm. in Hollywood, everybody, and and from Johnny Carson uh, on down. <clears throat> and we used to go to parties every weekend or so at Jeannie Martin's house, Dean Martin's uh, d- uh, divorcee, what did he call mm-hmm. Dean Martin's ex-wife. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was going to say widow, and that's the wrong word. No, no, his ex-knife. <laughs> it was his ex-knife. And, <clears throat> and we met everybody there, uh, uh, David Bowie and, and uh, uh, Elizabeth Taylor, and uh, I spoke Russian with Natalie Wood Holy and uh, all of the comedians, Jack Carson and and uh, uh, Rickles and you name them. They were all there. Mm-hmm. And and it was at a time when it was kind of the end of the Hollywood social life, you know, because you all hear about the fact that there used to be these wild parties, sometimes Bacchanalian parties where people would make connections professional connections mm-hmm. uh, uh you know and 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 get into movies and write movies and direct movies and produce movies based on a wild weekend at Errol Flynn's you know sure and, and, and that was kind of what was still going on at that time but on a much more genteel level a much more social and uh, uh friendly level because it was, after all, the era of uh, pot, mm-hmm. and the era of communes, and the era of uh, uh, the era of people's ways. No, of people <clears throat> kind of getting together in a friendly manner. All of which, of course, ended when the Manson murders happened. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. That was the end of that era because it, suddenly it became dangerous to open your house. To so many. Mm-hmm. You know, until your baby. Sheila, right? Sheila was literally one degree of separation from them, wasn't she? Oof, magoof, wow. Well, the story about Sheila and, and Sharon Tate uh, is rather eerie and, and sad. <clears throat> I presently live, uh, and, and I'm talking to you now from my, my guest dungeon, uh, about <laughs> five minutes away from where the murders happened. Mm-hmm. And it is told, uh, rumored, that the murderers washed the blood off their clothes and their knives on this street, Wanda Park Drive, three houses up from where I am right now, at mm. an old spigot that was, that was there. So it is said. Uh, but that night, <clears throat> Sheila had invited Sharon whom she had met when they were both contract players at Universal and, and shared a house on Clark Drive in uh, Beverly Hills, a, 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 a throne's stone from uh, where I used to work out. I mean, you know, all of these connections are endless and fascinating and, and uh, the web of life, it's just amazing. But that night, Sheila had invited Sharon to come and have dinner at her little house on, on Phyllis Avenue. <clears throat> and Sharon called up and said, you know, it was a hot day. 
the baby's been acting up, kicking me. Uh, uh, I just learned that Jay Sebring <clears throat> is in town, is going to come over. So we've decided we're just going to go out for dinner. And why don't you join us afterwards? <laughs> and, and Sheila said, no, I, I can't. Uh, there's an, you know, I have our other mutual friend coming over for dinner. So, you know, I, I, I'll call you. And when she called, <clears throat> the line was busy. Mm-hmm. And as was Sheila's want, because she was a very aggressive girl, she called the operator and said, what's going on? The operator said, well, the line is out of order. And so Sheila, Sheila called <clears throat> Sharon's dad, Colonel Tate. And by then, they'd already known mm. they, the police were there and they knew what had happened. Wow. So, as I often say, if Sheila had only gone with them, it would have saved me a nasty divorce. <laughs> but such is life. Such is life and such is death. And, and, such is, and, and such is that joke. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. For that try, try, the sac- try the sacrificial lamb. I have never felt guiltier for laughing at a joke. <laughs> Jesus Christ, the anecdote you just delivered, Phil Proctor. Well, on the Jesus Christ, we can't believe you just delivered that anecdote show. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to uh, let's move on to the the uh, the summer of of seventy two. I guess uh, after not insane, uh, I know a little bit about what uh, Peter did. He went and made that that amazing short film uh, love is hard to get with anton green yeah Bill, what did you do i was in that movie uh love is hard to get i i had a scene with a oh dear wonderful actor improvisational actor i still know and i of course can't remember his name now it may come to me later marlon brando no wasn't (laughs) but but we shot a scene <clears throat> where I was the maitre d at a upscale restaurant, and uh, it was a, a we shot it at our friend's new restaurant called Ports, which was a sports bar before that, and the new owner just took the S yes. off of sports <laughs> and made it into an exotic restaurant. Oh my God. Now, again, I cannot remember this wonderful man's name. He looked a little like Taylor, mm-hmm. and he was he was the chef, except he had, you know, a chef's thing on his, his head. And and he, a, a cre- oh, he created a wonderful restaurant. He used to love to go in there and have their uh, his marrow bones, mm-hmm. and, you know, split marrow bones with all. Oh, it was so good. Uh, his name is also dancing around my head. But anyway, that's where we shot that, that particular uh, movie. I think... I think well, Phil, Phil. I think you might be remembering Six Dreams. That's what I'm remembering. That was a that was a later film by Anton Green, which is also excellent. Which yeah. we hope we will get out on home video at some point. But that's oh, that's just should. another sweet sweet little avant garde piece from Anton Green, who was a who was originally a friend of Peter's from the farm, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So love is hard to get. He played. He did the gorilla in that, didn't he? He sang. Mm-hmm. He sang. Uh, uh, a, a rock and roll song is in a gorilla outfit. Yeah, Nazi Goring. Nazi Goring, which is the name of a, a Thai dish. Yeah, it's noodles. It's Thai noodles. Thai noodles, you know. Yes, that's right. Love is hard to get. And it really, <laughs> for Bergman, it really was. <laughs> but, but that's another story. 
Yeah. Uh, see, it's all a muddle in my poor little head. Appropriately, I, I mean, this is the most muddled album. It it, it is so. There's so much go here. But here's the thing, though. Uh, the, the regardless of how insane it was and how difficult it was to track, I'm always impressed uh, at the at, at the not just the comedy language, but the actual language you're writing in, because writing anything in, in you know, iambic pentameter or trying to sound like Shakespeare is something I could not do, and I'm wondering how naturally this kind of stuff came to you guys. Well, pretty naturally. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. Phil and David and I were all actors mm-hmm. and had, at one point or another, done Shakespeare, well, actually, I, I the first Shakespeare I ever did was at Riverdale Country School when I was, how would I have been then, 15 or 16 or something like that. Uh, we, we did an outdoor theater presentation of The Taming of the Shrew. Mm-hmm. And I played uh, the servant, uh, whose name I can't remember now, <laughs> Grubio. Mm-hmm. Grubio. Right. And I remember one of my lines, I'm a little pot and soon hot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Little did I know, I'd be smoking a little pot. And, and <laughs> Excellent. Now you're getting warm, you know. But anyway, uh, so Shakespeare was, was kind of second, always second nature to me. Mm-hmm. But the, the, one of the things that the Fireside Theater could do was that we all had tape recorders in our heads, and we could play things back. And so when it came to starting to play with the Shakespearean milieu, we all had stuff in our head whether it's we we had seen you know the Laurence Olivier's Hamlet right mm-hmm. or a production of Richard III in school or something the 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 rhythms were there i know one of the other inspirations for me was beyond the fringe mhm okay yeah uh, an early album by uh, among others uh, peter cook and Dudley moore yeah uh wonderful crazy english people and uh, and they did a Shakespearean parody. Oh, that's right. You know? Yeah, yeah. And uh, I am uh, the fool. I talk so fast. I know what I mean. You know, oh, saucy Worcester, dost thou lie so low? <laughs> you know. So of course, I was inspired by that. Mm-hmm. I, I shall just, now most royally to bed to sleep off all the nonsense I just said. I just said right. <laughs> yeah. So it was my turn. You know, to to do a turn on, on that. And and again. Firesign Theater embodied the re. Uh, there's a word, refactoring, no, reinventing, no, reworking, kind of. The there's a word. Purposing. Uh, uh, plagiarism. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> we plagiarized everything that we possibly could, uh-huh. and we re invented it for our own purposes. So uh, all, of the, all of the social things that were happening were kind of happening to us. You know, we were participating in, in the anti-Vietnamese war demonstrations. And, and we, as satirists, were dealing with some pretty heavy social issues sure. at the time. And so uh, when we got to something like, Sha- like a Shakespearean parody, like everything else that we did, we were able to throw in the issues of the day, repurposing, repurposing mm-hmm. the issues of the day. <clears throat> and uh, and by the way, 
oh, in, in uh, I think it's SeaWorld, they just added uh, some new dolphins. They're repurposing their uh, their their particular that particular show. <laughs> you're you're going to hell, Phil. But continue <laughs> for that, not for the one from earlier. <laughs> I thought that was a whale of a pun. But, okay, anyway, so 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 the the the, the story that we added to every, anything you want to. Mm-hmm. The conceit being, of course, that Shakespeare had written this play when he was in America. Okay? Mm-hmm. The people forgot that Shakespeare, you know, took a trip on a ship to America where he met Indians, Native Americans, and, and wrote a piece based on his experiences there. Mm-hmm. So we were dealing with the Native American story and the uh, English story. I remember on the ship over uh, in in our play, they, uh, they they're in a great storm, mm-hmm. and they have to throw some barrels over the side. And one of the characters says, "No, no, my servants are in those barrels," <laughs> <laughs> which again was a comment on an upper class, lower class thing. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, when we did the was it was it an NPR show, PBS show, whatever it was. Do you remember? Yeah, the the NPR version in like 1980 of uh, yeah, of, yeah, yeah, with live music <clears throat> by a group of musicians who did music on recreated old instruments. Wow, from medieval times. I love it. Okay, and, you know, and wrote original material, and some of it was authentic music of the times. Uh, the wraparound story that we decided to make had to do with the tension between communism and capitalism. And so I played an Australian director named uh, Derek something. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and, and I talked about the fact that we, we recorded this show in uh, phlegm and hot hot phlegm in, in Belgium, <laughs> okay, at one of the PBS stations. And, uh, and we were staying in a hotel, which was on the dividing line between the east and the west of Hochflem, so that one side of the hotel was a capitalist paradise. It was the caviar and champagne and girls in high heels and low cut dresses and, you know, dancing and just a decadent, wonderful time. But if you stepped across the line into the other part of the hotel, it was dingy and unkempt. And there were, you know, slovenly servants uh, uh, throwing up on the on 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 the, the dining tables. And, you know, and it was it just it was a completely different experience. Mm-hmm. This came from my experience in the Soviet Union with the mm-hmm. Yale Russian chorus in 59 where I was in Berlin when there was no wall but there was West Berlin and East Berlin yeah and West Berlin was a bustling wonderful you know commercial community artistic community and if you took the train uh, elevated train across into East Berlin you found bombed out buildings from the Second World War, you know, a, a feeling of complete despair, people dressed in drab clothes, very few automobiles, and they were usually gray Soviet cars called Seagull, Chaika. Uh-huh. And, and, and they had 
certain uh, apartment com complexes called Stalin Alley, which was uh, a Stalin style of architecture uh, from that era. And they shot. So, it had, it, so basically, it had room in the walls for you to be buried with your family. Yeah. Well, first of all, it, many generations had to live in one apartment. That was <laughs> really that was a Soviet style, Ooh, you know. Fine. And and and, uh, and yet we also got to go to the Berliner Ensemble, where Brecht cut his baby teeth. Wow. And, and watch, you know, a fantastic production of Deutsch, you know. But but that was. That was what we were commenting on, and and and, and again we rolled some of that into our Shakespearean story because again it was a story of a typical Shakespearean story of uh, up upsmanship. Who's going to be king, right? Who's mm -hmm. gonna Who's gonna take the reins of control of the kingdom? And that's an American story, okay, sure. as well. So. We we use the metaphor of Shakespeare to tell uh, that kind of a story. I think we also rolled in some radioactivity, didn't we? Peter Bergman's character uh, was a kind of a wizard, and 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 we we uh, made radioactive references. Do you remember that? Oh God, I can't remember. If yeah. I'd had, if I had re if I had prepared the anything you want to reissue that we should make for Bandcamp, I would know because I would have listened to all of those interstitial bits. But I haven't listened to those in a while. And you know, it, it's published. We we put out a book which you can get at Bear Manor Press mm -hmm. called Anything You Want to Shakespeare's Lost Comedy. That is yeah. the most batshit wonderful extreme practical joke Shakespeare book ever ladies and gentlemen every shakespearean actor needs a copy of that book and one of the, not just because of the the scenes and how funny the scenes are and how wonderful everything is mm -hmm. but because when we decided to put out the book we decided to make a parody of shakespearean play folios which as if you remember <clears throat> if you ever read any of them in school are heavily annotated sure. by, by scholars. You know, the word padunk, you know, was used, created by Shakespeare to be the sound of a duck hitting a wall, you know, in, the, in, in 1356 and became popular in French songs of the Auvergne in the following century, you know, things like that. So we <clears throat> wrote an entire history of ye old fire sign theater. Yeah. Positing once again, as we've done through, as we did through our entire career, mm -hmm. that the group, the Fireside Theater, these four guys, is eternal and has been around in different incarnations throughout history. Mm -hmm. okay? So, so the 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 footnotes in the, the book are the book. You know, there'll be a couple of lines of dialogue and then 150 lines of small type, right? <laughs> <laughs> which will take you on another whole adventure. Oh, good. I was telling book. I was telling Jason in the pre-show that this mm -hmm. really was the this was the apotheosis of the fire signs own 
world building around itself how mm -hmm. firesign had in in the years of generating this gigantic mythology determined that they were only the most recent purchasers of the firesign uh mantle they mm -hmm. bought the franchise from whoever I, was not using it last and it goes back right. 400 years yeah you know, what i was telling taylor is that not knowing that because you you know i've been following fire sign basically as we cover them on the podcast unless somebody else picks a, a, you know one of your albums to discuss which happens um <laughs> i've been accidentally stealing this exact gag for some time now and i it makes me so happy though that at the very least it's parallel thinking because like there's even a bit on this record where is it is it peter who's playing gary fire sign is that he who's playing yes, Gary? Fire? okay the secret you're talking about everything you know is wrong yeah, uh, uh, uh oh, right, oh, it, but also in the, in, in the Not Insane yeah. album, there's this giant mega ad where Gary Firesign of Hollywood is trying to sell cars. Yes, yes, yeah, okay. that, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you have since played Herschel F. Comedy Hour for Dan and Jay's Comedy Hour for one of my albums, which you very kindly did for me. So, uh, I just keep accidentally stealing from you without knowing that I've been doing it, and it's uh, I don't know, the, the fake history stuff is maybe my favorite comedy of all time, and I just love that this is okay. This I have a, I have a stealing so story. I have a Please. stealing story for you. Please. <clears throat> this is tangentially related because I'm speaking to you on a, an Apple computer, right? Sure. Now. And uh, uh, when I was writing with the boys, David Osman was our typist, just like Woody Allen was the typist for your show of shows mm -hmm. with Doc Simon and Carl Reiner and, and Sid Caesar and all the rest. David was was uh, he could uh type sightlessly and touch type okay mm -hmm. and and so he he was our typist <clears throat> and we would uh, uh type copies with carbon paper now i'm sure that there are some people out there who have no fucking idea what, what i'm talking about right. but in, in the old days children uh, <laughs> you, you had a thing called paper which was invented by the chinese mm -hmm and you had sheets of paper uh, and you would put them into a roller device with a little machine that had keys that would strike the letters on the paper and if you put a, a this carbon paper behind it which is a thin sheet of of dirty stuff that you could get on your fingers <clears throat> it would make the impression of that key strike a keystroke on another piece of paper it was invented by marconi course did marconi uh, after he invented you guys marconi? said it did so that's <laughs> that's the fact no, anyway so uh that's the way we basically wrote and and most of us wrote in longhand mm -hmm. when we brought our stuff in and i have back here in my office files filled with my own handwritten material oh my that but because i have macular degeneration is getting harder and harder and harder for me to go through sure see. but when I, every time i do i see first of all i don't know how i, I could read my writing <coughs> it's somewhat illegible mm -hmm. but also all of the drawings and the little sketches and the little things oh. the, you know it's it really it's charming and it takes me back but i'm i digress because of <laughs> something i ate <laughs> and uh, uh, what I'm trying to say is that when the only reason I moved on to computer was because Harry Anderson, the late great magic comic mm -hmm. person, 
had stolen some material from me when Proctor and Bergman were touring, and I created <laughs> this character named Dr. Astro. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you the bit that he stole in a minute. And he was guilty about it. So when he was doing all of the early ads for the Mac computers, oh wow! after every session, <clears throat> studio session, he would grab up all the machines, mm -hmm. put them in his trunk of his car, and give them to his friends. Yes. <laughs> so I he was Harry the Hat from Cheers. He would Harry actually steal oh, them. Harry, <laughs> Harry was shit. totally authentic. That's why he has such a wonderful career. Oh, my but, God. But he gave me my first computer. Wow. Okay. Then later, I don't know mm -hmm. if anybody remembers this, but Harry did a series of commercials for fax machines. Oh, wow. Okay. And he admitted he stole some other material from me, and he gave me a fax machine. <laughs> Fantastic. Perks, Hollywood I'm so, Perks, and take him when you get Perks, him. right. I'm so sorry he's not with us anymore, because <clears throat> I'm sure he'll remember something else he stole from me. Right. <laughs> the, the bit that he stole from Dr. Astro, Peter and I would do this uh, in cabarets, <clears throat> and Dr. Astro would give phony readings to people, you know, you're a Snagittarius or you're a Leon or you're whatever. And we made up all kinds of terrible, you know, predictions about what kind of, what was in store for them and what a terrible sign they were, you know. <laughs> and and uh, at one point I would, because I was playing like a Johnny Carson character with the, the, the turban and the feather and all that, mm -hmm. I would suddenly inter be interrupted in the act by, I am getting, Vibrations, we're getting strong vibrations from someone in the audience. Is there someone in the audience? And I and I would stagger out into the audience. Strong vibrations, good vibrations, good vibrations. And I would stop in front of the prettiest girl that we could find, and which is usually a guy in drag, but that's sure. because Fireside fans were. No, I won't get so I won't get into that, and I didn't get into that. However. Uh, we'd stop in front of a, I'd stop in front of a pretty girl and I would reach into her purse and pull out a dildo, a vibrator that would, he said, your vibrator is on. <laughs> <laughs> Harry loved that so much. He stole he it. Stole it. And of course the vibrator that we used in the act, I, I got by mail, uh -huh. mail order <laughs> and it showed up. It was delivered to my next door neighbor, <laughs> who was a widow lady, <laughs> who had to bring it over to me and say, is this yours? <laughs> I, said, I said, I guess so. I mean, I don't, I don't remember ordering it, but thank you, you know. Didn't it go off in front of a customs agent at some point? <laughs> well, that's, that's uh, yes, but that's another horrible. Well, please tell me that the, the Library of Congress has your vibrator. <laughs> oh, you know, that's one of the things we are disappointed about because we we, tr we try to give them all our costumes yeah, yeah. and props and things. But th no, they're more interested in, you know, the, the digital material, right? Fair right enough. There, you know, but yeah. Uh, and I mean, I mean uh, technically, a dildo is uh, digital in some form, but uh, <laughs> they still didn't. They didn't want any of the uh, any of the electronics that we sent. They're going to, yeah. they're threatening to send them back. They haven't sent them back yet. Oh, good. That's funny. Oh, good. Well, that's because of the COVID. You know, right. Right. Uh, but uh, the story that you're telling about the vibrator going off is 
probably true, but the one I remember the most because it was the most traumatic was that uh, Peter and I had gone to uh, visit his parents, Rita and uh, what was his name? Oscar. Oscar and Rita. Uh, Oscar had a great voice like that. Oscar and Rita. And uh, uh, by the way, I don't know if people know that Peter Bergman cut his uh, radio teeth with his parents because they used to do a show called Breakfast with the Bergmans. Indeed. Oh my God. In their house, you know, down at their breakfast table. Holy shit. And Peter would, you know, he'd say, pass me the toast and the jam and the microphone. You know, wow. Jason, I'll send I'll send you a photo from a, a, a from a newspaper uh, mm -hmm. article. There was a picture of Oscar and Rita in front of their microphones. Wow. My my dear friend Jimmy Alcroft and partner in Boomers on a Bench, who recently had oh two years ago now a, a liver and heart transplant. Oh yeah. And he was in the hospital for like for 180 days Oof. before he got it. And his best line is. Uh, which is in his book, Diary of a Tin Man. Uh, mm -hmm. Anybody who's ever, who says laughter is the best medicine has never had a morphine drip. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so true. You know? right. yeah. So, so the, the other time there was a, a, a vibrational mystery <laughs> was when Firesign played Washington, D.C. And uh, Peter and I... <laughs> Let's see. Let me just think of the timing on all this. We had perhaps, let me think. All I know is that there were aliens involved in the act. Because okay? mm -hmm. Peter and I portrayed aliens in our act. And we were interviewed for Time Magazine, not Time Magazine, The New Yorker, The Talk of the Town, as our characters, as our, our characters. And that was right before I met Uri Geller and all of the incredible flying saucer stuff that I went through. It's in my book, Where's My Fortune Cookie? <laughs> I can't tell you about it now because I have to kill you. Mm -hmm. But anyway, uh, so Peter and I, after the show, we're staying at the Three Georges, which is a really nice hotel in Georgetown. Okay. And uh, we get out of the elevator and with our prop suitcases, which are now fireside filled, and... Uh, I go to my room and Peter calls me. Yeah, yeah, 10, I know you call. <laughs> Peter calls me from his room and he says, Phil, I, I know that this is going to be very strange, but I have to tell you something that just happened to me. So I, I said, okay, I'll, I'll come down. So I come down to the room and Peter says, as I was walking down the hall to my room with my suitcase, it suddenly started vibrating and there was a tone in it that went kind of like oh. and he said I, I know this may sound stupid but I just left it in the hallway and ran into my room and closed the door and waited till I heard it go Ooh. and I went out I kicked it over I unzipped it, I looked through it, and I could find nothing that could have created this effect. What the hell? Well, I had a similar thing happen when we were performing as Proctor and Bergman in New York, and we stayed at a famous women's hotel, which is now open to everybody. 
uh, called, uh, I don't know, the vagina. I don't remember. <laughs> At the Royal, the, the Regal Vagina. Oh, okay, sure. And, right. Yeah, yeah. And, Big uh, and uh, I had a very nice room, and we performed our show, and went back to lie down before going out to dinner or something. I couldn't get into my room. My key didn't work, and uh, the door wouldn't open. So we called the Hotel Dick, whose name was Richard, by the way. <laughs> and, and he came up. Uh, Tried, tried it, didn't work. He had a pass key, tried the pass key, didn't work. So he took out a special key and he put it in and it worked. And he opened the door. And at this time, lights were going on and off all around me, which was, I was told by my psychic friend who predicted the Chinese gangland massacre, Sharon, was a sign that the aliens liked what we were doing. All right. I'll take it. So the light is on. The overhead light is on in the room. I turned it on. And I said, well, what, what, what's going on here? And the hotel detective said, well, somehow somebody threw the deadbolt in your room. But he said they'd have to be inside the room to throw the deadbolt. Mm -hmm. And there's nobody here, is there? I said, no. So there's another unexplained <laughs> mystery. So creepy. So oh, creepy. creepy, weepy. <laughs> oh, but, you know, again, it was all part of the fact that we were out there. We were mm -hmm. out there. We were tempting fate. We were talking about what was going on. We were, we were psychically linked to everybody and everything that was happening in society and feeding off of it. And entertaining one another with our observations or our, or our uh, mm, the messaging that we might have been getting from the invisible world. Mm -hmm. Which you know, this might this might be a thing that is uh, something uh, to go into later. But I mean, when when you got Firestone, you got Proctor and Bergman, and you got Austin and Osman. I think Proctor and Bergman. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Phil, but you guys were of the two uh, pairs of guys were much more interested in getting out there and playing clubs yeah. and actually actually meeting lots of weirdos and talking to them. What do you mean? Our fans? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> A.K.A. our fans. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, that was actually uh, a point of contention uh, with the group. Mm -hmm. At a certain point, Peter and I really felt that we were going to, we were out of touch with our fans. And we were limited in our ability to tour because Phil Austin, God bless him, the other Phil, he didn't like to fly. He wouldn't fly. He flew once with us on a private aircraft, I think twice, on a, on a private jet uh, because we were on a private jet, you know, come right. on, like a magic carpet, you know. But he didn't want to fly on a, on a commercial aircraft. And so it limited our ability to get out there and promote our works and meet our fans and peter and i felt strongly that we needed to do that to promote not just ourselves but the group and the group mm -hmm. ethos and so we created proctor and bergman and and went on a wild ride with that which included all kinds of radio syndication and 
and public appearances on TV shows and talk shows. I mean, it, and you know, with all these DJs all over the country, it was you know the world of, of the tour of the touring comic, and it was great, mm -hmm. and and people were ready for it, and, and we promoted everything Firesign, and and since we did some albums because we knew that if we wanted the support of a record company as Procter and Bergman, we had to have product out there with our names and faces on it. Yeah. So we wrote an album called TV or not TV, which predicted the computer avalanche mm -hmm. revolution, thousands of stations and everything and, uh, uncensored television and all that. And, uh, uh, and the, the other boys, David and Phil were, they wanted to do, just stay in Hollywood and do more albums. We had nothing against doing more albums, but sure. if you're going to do an album, you're not going to go on the road. Yeah. So we said, we'll go on the road and you guys can do some albums, which they did. David did his wonderful solo album, How Time Flies. Mm -hmm. Phil did his wonderful solo album, Roller Maidens from Outer Space. And then together, uh, they collaborated on uh, In the Next World You're On Your Own, which Peter and I were able to play roles in to yeah. become a part of. And that was kind of when we melded our careers together again. And, you know, we could still, still sustain occasional Procter & Bergman things, but we could also concentrate on work with the group. And... You know, which, which was which paid off really well in the uh, Rhino albums that we did later. Mm -hmm. Assuming we have more shows, that's a really interesting period. It took me a long time to figure out. Was um, Firesign did these two great albums in '73 and '74, Giant Rat and uh, Everything You Know Is Wrong. Mm -hmm. But the next album after that, although it had all four voices on it, it was only written. It was only written by Austin and Osman. Okay. And I, it took me a long time to realize that the reason for that was that Procter and Bergman had conflicting tour dates. Yeah. Oh, sure. wow. Okay. You know, look, that that's if I regret anything about my career with Fireside Theater, it, it was that I couldn't be in two places at once when I was possibly somewhere at all. <laughs> no, when I was not anywhere at all, really, because, you know, your career is only your career if you're somewhere you do something so and i could not be in two places at once when i was not anywhere at all i had to turn down a tv pilot in tahiti where i would be able to speak french okay i had i turned down oh i i turned down all kinds of, i turned down managership by neil israel and a guy named uh Gruskoff. uh what was his first name i don't know Tyler, I don't know, uh, because they wanted to manage my career in movies, okay? Uh, and I said, I, I, I can't, I can't do it. You know, I, I, I'm a member of the Firesign Theater. I owe an allegiance to my partners, and we have a career. And I, it, it was just too dangerous for me to to think that, you know, I'd have to go off and do a movie for three months. Mm -hmm. uh, and I regret that because I probably could have worked, made it happen. So instead, they got Tom Hanks. For God's sake. Oh, oh man. What a oh, terrible decision. But for the movie called Bachelor Party, uh -huh. 
But anyway, oh my god! Yeah, I mean that those things happen to me a lot mm-hmm. uh, because I'm I'm a talented actor and and I started on Broadway, a musical comedy, mm-hmm. and, you know, and I, I I had numerous career paths open to me, and some of them led me to the Fireside Theater, and then the Fireside Theater kind of let me do everything. Mm-hmm. I could sing, I could act, I could write, I could produce, I could direct, I could do sound effects. Uh, compose music, direct music, choral music, sing music, and and that was what I w- what I was supposed to do. I mean, that's kind of like this is what you're supposed to do. Yeah. Because yeah. the, the people that attracted me the most most when I was growing up comedically, be, besides people like Beyond the Fringe, were Bob and Ray mm-hmm. and Ernie Kovacs. Sure. All right, and and both of them were creative and outstanding i mean they had they created their own worlds right and Mm -hmm. did everything in those worlds uh in fact i just listened to bob and ray at carnegie hall this morning Mm -hmm. stumbled across an online recording of it they're just as funny as ever i mean i can listen to them anytime anywhere and they make me fall off my seat they really just just wonderful so in a way that was what i felt rewarded by with fireside theater we were doing a modern version again like a reimagining of uh of of a comic production a broadcast if you will radio oriented to reach people uh, and and in our case we created the long form comedy record mm-hmm. which was like a stan freeberg sure show you know and uh, and yet it gave us the opportunity to develop our own writing style to develop our own characters ali baloo here you know mm-hmm. and and to and to create a body of work uh an opus that was oddly connected as we evolved as writers and players mm-hmm that must have been the really just beautiful part of fire sign is that you could use everything that you had going for you in yeah. a piece of art yeah. yeah i mean every piece of every talent that you had you could show off and it would be you're, you're part of an ensemble that needed and wanted that yeah. input yeah encouraged it among uh, among our, ourselves i mean every i i, I could say in, in a shorthand, Dave Osman supplied poetry and, and an incredible radio voice and, and, and parodies of announcers to us. And that's just a little bit of what mm-hmm. he brought to us, plus his, his great writing chops. Bergman was hysterically funny and was a, was a, 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 a play doctor. Mm-hmm. I mean, he could take, he could take a, a, a skit and punch it up you know, till we were all seeing stars, you know, we were all so punch drunk. And, and Osman, uh, Austin was a talented actor and self-taught musician and composer uh, who also was surrealistically, surrealistically funny as shit. Sure. And, you know, and, and the whole group, uh, our, our goal was always to make one another laugh. Yeah. You know, if we could make one another laugh, we knew somebody out there in the in the vast darkness 
was also going to laugh at at something that yeah. we were doing and it proved to be true i mean it's got to be so satisfying though to to make you know what they would call now deep cuts but make these very weird not just obscure references but of course jokes that fly by so fucking fast that you can't catch them until the 10th listen and then yeah. to have people come up to you and probably quote the shit out of it yeah you know? <laughs> that was that was a, a conscious design mm -hmm. on our parts uh inspired by the goon shows mm -hmm. and, and their tremendous surrealism uh which we all embraced uh and the art of put on or send up becoming characters like bob and ray mm -hmm. and taking taking people on a a jolly old trip into some fantasy or another that sounded real mm -hmm. uh, uh that was all part of it but but uh also uh we we knew that as a unit when we decided to do not just short skits or short routines but stories dramatic comedic you know dramedy comedy stories historical comedy uh <laughs> pastoral uh that that was the thing that 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 glued us together you know because nobody had done that Mm -mm. And and we we did it naturally. It just came naturally to us, and it was the most rewarding aspect of our of our career together. Yeah, you know, you mentioned you know the Bob and Ray influence is clear, but I it, I don't know why it never occurred to me how clear the Kovacs connection is. If if only because your your records are very much what I feel like he would have done if he'd have been making comedy albums because the only records he has had are posthumous I think so yeah. Yeah. so yeah. just yeah. playing with the form treating it as though it's something brand new the, the difference of course being for him the TV was relatively new when he was fucking around with it audio wasn't yet you still found some you found tricks that nobody else had done yeah that's but, right and that was very rewarding but Kovacs whom I used to watch uh, in New York mm -hmm. live he had an early morning television show on CBS mm -hmm. called the Early Eyeball Show or something. Mm -hmm. Early morning eyeball show. I have a, actually a autographed postcard from him because I was a big oh, fan. I watched, I love it. watched every, every, you know, every, every morning. Yeah. And, and what he would do was, for instance, I, I can sing this song now because Edie Gourmet sang it as part of a character he created called Der All-Night Spinner, <coughs> a German character. Mm -hmm. And one of the records that he played was, Wie viel ist das Bund, das Fenster, ha, ha, die ein mit dem Waligen Scheiß. Wie viel ist das Bund, das Fenster, ha, ha, ich möchte mehr haben sie mehr kann. How much is the dog in the window in German? So good. <laughs> please, <laughs> you know, please. And see, I used to tape his show. Mm -hmm. I had a, a, my, my dad was an entrepreneur, and he used to bring inventions into the house all the time. Mm -hmm. We had a wire recorder, which is oh. why we made the joke, a barbed wire recorder. Yeah. The Old West, I love right? That joke so much. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, uh, and then we, no, I think before the wire recorder, we had a little disc maker. You had oh, these okay. Vinyl, vinyl, not plastic discs, vinyl yeah. discs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and a recording needle and i have a, a recording of me singing uh, a, a christmas hymn uh, on that when i, I was love it. eight or seven or eight Holy and God. then the wire recorder and then 
the reel-to-reel recorder. Sure. And that's when I figured out that I could, I bought a microphone, a Shure microphone, and a long cable, and I would run the cable from my room to the television, which at that time was in the living room, everybody's living room, you know, mm-hmm. everybody's eggs. And, and I, and I would just put it up to the speaker and record things, you know, and, and, and I have Ernie Kovacs. I recorded all kinds of Ernie Kovacs stuff and then would learn it and play with it and have fun with it. Uh, and with Bob and Ray, we then got a tape recorder with a radio built in. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so I would record Bob and Ray who were on every morning, uh, five days a week on WOR, I think, uh, doing a show from, I think, six until nine, something like that. Mm-hmm. And so I'd listen to the first hour and at seven, I'd have to go to Alan Stevenson's school to rehearse with the orchestra mm-hmm. playing the violin and mm-hmm. then go to school. And my mom would record the rest of Bob and Ray. And then I would come back listen to the rest of Bob and Ray while I did my homework. Okay. And, and then I learned there were things that happened on the Bob and Ray radio show that I just thought were pure gold. Like when they'd break one another up Mm -hmm. or, you know, uh, uh, Peter Roberts was the newsman and they teased him incorrigibly. They, they used to go in at the end of his newscast and set his script on fire. <laughs> they go under the table and set his script on fire. And he had a laugh that was the strangest laugh I've ever heard. He would go, ha, 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 And he would go on for five minutes. And they would just, they would just relish it. And he'd say, you're so bad. You're so bad. They would also go in and they'd pull his pants off under the table. So I saved those things Mm -hmm. by crudely, because I didn't know anything about tape editing, crudely cutting it with scissors and using scotch tape and putting it, saving it on a reel. And, And later, I think I fixed them with real splicing tape and a real razor. But I gave that reel to Larry Josephson who was producing Bob and Ray on National Public Radio. Mm-hmm. And he included it in his uh, two, two CD, three, four, four CD set, the best of Bob and Ray or something like that. Mm-hmm. So my mom and my saving of the best of Bob and Ray from their, those, that radio series is, is, is available to people. That's so good. You know? Oh. So inspiration, inspiration. Want to be funny, want to be silly, want to be absurd, want want to be other characters, want to do it by sound. You know, I I cut together a thing. uh, (laughs) I found out that I could buy sound effects records, Mm -hmm. which were 78 sound effects records at a place called Valentine's, I think it was. And and, uh, it was an address on like 8th Avenue in in a big building that your daddy works in. And I would go in there and go up to the eighth floor, and there it was, uh, Valentine Records, whatever it was, on a on you know on a Nick Danger door. Mm-hmm. So on the other side, it was and I know what you know, it's <laughs> just and and he had 
you know, uh, shelves and shelves and shelves and shelves and shelves of sound effects records in plain brown wrappers mm-hmm. <coughs> and a catalog book mm-hmm. that told you where everything was. Wow. And so I'd go in there with my allowance and I'd buy as many of them as I could. And then I'd take them back and I'd make recordings of my own with a sound effects background playing on my Victrola mm-hmm. in the background. <laughs> and I remember once I cut together, there was a an ad for Knickerbocker beer, which was knock, knock for Knickerbocker. Knock, 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 knock for Knickerbocker beer. So I recorded that knock, knock for Knickerbocker. I used a guy hitting another guy and smashing into furniture and stuff like that. And that was, I think, my first comic cut up. Oh my you know? god. <laughs> uh, just for me and, and maybe my parents, you know. Uh, but but th- th- that was that was it. The the, the audio inspiration mm-hmm. was very early in my life. Yeah. You know, and doing voices was early and and, and uh, inspired by geniuses of the time. Delightful. That is delightful. Um I feel like I should point out by way of uh, promotion that this t- Taylor is this record the first reference or only reference of dope humor of the seventies that then becomes a reality not so long ago. Um, Talk for a minute. No, the ad uh, dope humor of the seventies was mm-hmm. part of the Let's Eat show. I don't mm-hmm. think it was part of. I don't think it was on. Not insane. It is. It's uh, mentioned in here. It's in the back. You can hear it, it loosely in the background. Yeah. Oh man! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dope humor in the seventies. Well, yeah, that was one and two. I think they definitely they definitely did that bit that Mm -hmm. year. Who can forget Cheech Chong's The Electrician? (laughs) Yeah, right. That that was nineteen. That was nineteen seventy-two all the way. Ah, such a beautiful record. Look at that thing. Look at that thing. You could get it as a download too. As you can see, this is an unopened copy. I'll open it and let 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 the comedy out. I had to tear okay. mine open immediately the second I got it. I it's sure. really funny. I, I was listening to some of it the other day, mm-hmm. you know, just randomly. It's in my computer. So every once in a while, one of the bits will, will just pop up. <laughs> and, and, and I go, my God, that's funny. You know, who, who were these people? You know, <laughs> why, why, why don't I remember doing this? You know? and, and that's because we really did uh, a lot of it. Mm-hmm. You know, again, that's the other side of the of the Fireside Theater. Remember, in those days, children records had two sides, mm-hmm. All right? Side A and side B, mm-hmm. and uh, which these vinyl records do in this marvelous vinyl edition, mm-hmm. which I think you can still get. Uh, and yeah. uh, oh, stand up records. Oh yeah, we should get mention that. Dan would kill record. me if we didn't. That's okay. right. And oh no, buy yours now. I've lost my train of thought. Oh yeah, radio. Yeah. So so in in past times comics had to stand up and deliver their goods. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently according to uh, uh, a friend of mine who wrote a book about stand-up comedy. Uh, stand up came from the time when people would be sitting at tables in like in the Friars Club or something and they'd have to stand up to deliver a joke mm-hmm. so it became you're a stand-up comic fair enough all right so we did that to develop certain pieces at a club called the ashgrove 
which is now has had a great life as the improv, mm -hmm. the home of the improv, where all the great comics, Jay Leno and Richard Pryor, and I mean, all, all of them worked at one point or another. Firesign Theater worked there doing our Nick Danger for mm -hmm. a taping of Live at the Improv. And before that, it was uh, Ed Pearl's Ashgrove, primarily a folk club mm -hmm. with, uh, you know, comic, comic acts and, and things. And uh, the Credibility Gap worked there as well as we did. And that was one way to reach an audience, get a response, and develop material. We developed Giant Rat of Sumatra there. Mm -hmm. We developed Don't Crush That Dwarf, Tammy the Pliers, which we called A Life in the Day. And it was we invented channel surfing, and we used that as a comic uh, uh, through line. <clears throat> and we did a lot of shows that never went anywhere, but pieces of them were incorporated, like the Owl and Octopus show. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, that was and <clears throat> we're meet people here at Ralph's, you know, and <clears throat> and various other shows. Joey's House, Joey's House. <laughs> we we created a, a love a beloved American family, you know, that was completely haunted and and and, and crazy, dysfunctional, you know, <clears throat> and and aspects of that characters that we created would end up on our records, but not all of them were. Uh, became became topic for a record but radio <clears throat> we could go you know if we were performing on stage we had to have costumes and lights and sets austin was a, a genius at creating crazy sets for us and i uh, if i do say so myself was very ingenious in finding props and costume pieces and masks mm -hmm. and things that could create instant mm -hmm. changes you know, it, it, so you could go from one place to another, just like our records did, with a minimal of turn turn around, put on a mask, and then you're you're another character. Throw throw on a, a vest, you're another character. And uh, uh, anyway, radio, we didn't have to do any of that. It was all in your head. It was movies in your mind, and so radio became not only the origin of the Fireside Theater on Peter Bergman's Radio Free Eyes late night <clears throat> counterculture call-in talk show, <laughs> which all of he invented on KPFK. But it became a place for us to constantly create new material and try it out really for the four of us. But we attracted an audience and <clears throat> the audience Usually, as I remember, we're all lying on the floor. <laughs> you know, we'd be sitting around a round table with with Mike, Michael Raffolds, and and there'd be a bunch of fans, Edgar Bullington and God knows who else, lying on the floor <laughs> under the table, laughing at what we were doing. <clears throat> and I loved that, not just because it gave us a hint as to what was working, but. <clears throat> When I was, again, watching early television as a kid, Bob and Ray had a 15-minute show on NBC for a while. Okay. Okay? And, I, of course, I would watch it after I got back from school. And no audience, just Bob and Ray uh, doing, like, Mary Backstage, Noble Wife, and, and, and visualizing some of the radio characters that we'd gotten to know and love with funny mustaches or mm -hmm. a silly hat, 
you know, again, minimalistic and, and somewhat surrealistic uh, uh, hints at what, what the characters looked like. But the material was the funny part. And I remember no audience except for the cameraman. And they would laugh because they couldn't help themselves. And I remember watching the, one, of the, one of the shots of Bob and Ray wiggle because <laughs> the cameraman was laughing so hard. It was live. <laughs> he, he couldn't control his camera. And I said, that's what I want to do. Right. <laughs> that's, that's funny. You know, that's truly funny. One of the reasons that, that we enjoy watching Stephen Colbert right now during the, the pandemic is because he the only laughter you hear is from his it's his true. cameraman and his producers and his wife i love it yeah i hate to say it but this really is a golden age for tv you know talk show yeah. comedy yeah Watching it's retro the colbert bits when he's just trying to make like six people in the studio laugh <laughs> yeah, for right, his audience right. it's the best it is yeah. the i best. mean there's a moment in one of the dear in one of the let's each shows <laughs> that i don't think would have been as nearly as funny if there was nobody in the studio but it just kills because there are people in the studio they're just everybody is just drifting into this sort of whatever you know and bergman says i'm going to the going to the i'm going to the dance with my girl my name is bradley austin comes in and says my name is bradley your name is bradley that's right I'm going to the tuxedo dance on Sunday with a girl named Bradley. That's why did I expect to be taken in a taxi? The fact that there are six people in that room that are just just dying on the floor at how good this is, yeah. that turns was what wonderful. was a really funny a, a funny bit into just uh, an amazing... And the other thing I, I have to acknowledge... Uh, uh, the contribution of our engineer, the real Earl Jive, mm -hmm. who's still a friend of mine. He's Canadian. He's up in Toronto right now. But he he used to play with us. He was the perfect foil for us because he would drop in sound effects or, or inappropriate music, you know, without, without any uh, uh, prompting from us. And then we would have to improvise to that oh and, and you know and, and make chaos. it make it part of this story Holy it shit. was it was it was chaos embraced mm -hmm. it, it was you know it was uh loving chaos yeah you know? and and out of that many times because we were totally uninhibited you you couldn't have footing under those circumstances you know mm -hmm. if the ship tilted in a certain way you had to you know maintain your footing on that mm -hmm. by tilting with it you know <laughs> so uh it it was a wonderful place to discover things yeah. and what you hear on the on the record dope humor of the 70s uh is you hear the work being done yeah you know you hear the selflessness of it you hear the surprise of it you hear sometimes the hit and the miss mm-hmm you know, and and that's all part of the of the fun because it it makes it abundantly clear that you're hearing something absolutely real of the moment, mm -hmm. which is not something that you you know when you think about our entertainment today uh, and how packaged it is. Even the reality shows aren't real. Yeah, 
You know what I mean? It was it it, it was an era where uh, we were free to do that kind of stuff. That's the one other thing about Fireside Theater and even the Not Insane album. Uh, we had a contract with Columbia Records. Now that's no that's no little deal. That's not mm -hmm. chopped liver, and. Uh, uh, and we had a four record deal. We did three records. And, and the first record, Waiting for Electrician or someone like him, I guess we did more than four records with them. But, uh, again, I don't remember the chronology of this, but uh, the first record uh, was a moderate success because it was totally new. You know, uh, the, the first side, which was made up of, of, of short sketches uh, about topical events like the hippie generation or the uh, psychedelics mm -hmm. or you know the the story of the american indian uh or what have you and uh with with a live orchestra uh that later became the wrecking crew that was brought into the studio by jimmy guercio glenn campbell is on the uh, on the uh guitar on our first album wow and I mean, it was like all fresh, new, let's do it. My God, we can do it. Uh, and because we can. And then the second side was a long form story waiting for the electrician or someone like it. We put out the album. Uh, is anybody going to salute? You know, we're running it up the flagpole. Anybody gonna salute? <laughs> and uh, uh, there's a meeting of the suits at Columbia. And one of them holds up the album and says, what's this? Who are these people? And what are they trying to do? What is this? Said, so, you know, I don't, let's drop them. And a guy named John McClure said, you don't understand. This is the new comedy. This is where comedy is going. These four guys are geniuses and they've created a new long form comedy album. You know, he said, look, if, if you don't believe in them, I am the head of the spoken arts division of Columbia Records. I will sign them to a spoken arts contract. And, and in a way he did, because they kept us on. Mm -hmm. And what he did was in, in exchange for a reduced royalty, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> he gave us unlimited studio time insane we could go into the studio whenever it was open and and record stuff and that's why we were able to do what we did because we could write something and unfinished we could take it into the studio and try it out improvise on it change it find out where the voices were who our characters were and then informed by that go back and write some more <laughs> and take that in and so we can finish the album in a way that had never been possible never been possible before you know the whole history of music on uh, recorded music was doing one number after another number yeah okay uh com complete you, you record the whole number all right, and that take was pretty good. Let's do it again, boys. You know, and then later, when editing became more sophisticated, you could say, "Let's overdub the the, the horns." Mm -hmm. Okay, so people were beginning to think, "Hey, wait a minute, 
we can play with this, we can manipulate this, you know. All right, hey, can we cut the the thing out from the end and redo the end? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah we can do. Can we do that? No, well, let's try it. You know, <laughs> and and so Firesign came into the uh, recording world at a time when people were a, were starting to play with all those the wall of sound and editing and overdubbing and all that and and that was what we applied to a comedy record mm -hmm. see and it was so liberating and I would imagine yeah i and, guess that's what the what the big difference is with not insane is that after these four your first four first four albums that were intensely studio productive uh -huh. and after dear friends which was a collection of radio stuff there was only about five or ten minutes of stuff on Mount Insane that was recorded in the studio. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Because it was, the, the fire sign was splintered mm -hmm. at the time. Uh, we were not working on a daily basis coherently together, mm -hmm. which was another thing that gave us our peculiar uh, strength. You know, we liked working together. Mm -hmm. We liked sitting around a table, getting slightly high and drinking brandy and making <laughs> miniature castles. We liked that, you know, it, it, it was quite different from what a band would have to do <laughs> where they'd have to, you know, go into a studio or somebody's garage and, and sweat, you know, play until you're, I got blisters on my fingers. You know, no, we didn't have to do all that. Uh, we, we, we'd get stoned and, and make one another laugh. And write it down. Write that down. That's funny. And and you, earlier, I think uh, Taylor touched upon the fact that we also incorporated a lot of found material mm -hmm. into our work. I think a lot of that was inspired by Dave Osman, who put out poetry books that were made of collages, cut-ups, snip-ups of uh, found material or excerpts of books like the Dada's. Yeah, like yeah. The, That's great. Uh, the Dadas and the Mamas, my one of my favorite. The Mamas and the Dadas, <laughs> one of my favorite groups. You know, Cass Elliott. Great album cover. Too bad they had to take the toilet off the cover. That's right. Cass Elliott and Spike Milligan. Oh my God. And, and Harry Seacombe. Brilliant. But anyway, uh, I, I did that a lot. Overheard conversations. Write them down. I heard it. Oh my God. What did he just say? Write it down. <laughs> And I'd bring it in and I'd read it to the boys or I'd find something on the street. That's where this whole thing about uh, like a bridge, there's this whole strange, strange uh, political speech, which is totally taken from a, 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 a mad person's scribblings on a piece of paper found on a Hollywood street. Wow. wow. <laughs> you know, and we could just roll it in, mm -hmm. roll it in. And where does it take us? You know, again, it was like the, the, the social psyche, mm -hmm. okay, and uh, uh, its inspiration was on every every corner. Yeah, every corner. As an actor, I was always inspired by observing things. I could draw a character from a simple observation of how somebody was walking, or how they dressed, or how they how, what, what, something that they said, and what kind of a voice they said it in, and and I could you know use that when I created a character because I had all this 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 sense memory in a way to draw upon and all of the Firesign theater every single one of us had that that knack okay or that 
the drive to do that. They, we all found the real world amusing, mm-hmm. crazy, uh, and and we we embraced that. That it, it that re, you know that's why the first question we ever asked was what is reality? Mm-hmm. What is reality? And uh, when you think back on waiting for the electrician, again, one of the things about Firestone Theater was is its timelessness. But the other thing was its prognostication. We were constantly projecting, like a science fiction writer would, Mm -hmm. what society would be like if if we had these tools, if suddenly we had had phones in our shoes. (laughs) Every time we we stepped, we make a a call, which is from the case of the missing shoe, Mm -hmm. the danger. and uh, in, in Electrician, we created this quiz show called Beat the Reaper. Mm-hmm. First of all, Electrician is all about the, the fall of the, of the Soviet Empire. That's what mm-hmm. it was all about. We, I had experienced it firsthand when I went to the Soviet Union with the Russian chorus, and I shared my observations with the boys <clears throat> that I saw that, that it was all a sham and that all the money was going into uh, military and uh, because they were so traumatized by the Second World War, they didn't want that to happen again. Mm-hmm. My God, we're gonna, we're ready, we're ready. And uh, and and in order to do that, because the government controlled all the means of production, uh, they had to, to cut back in certain other areas, like people's lives. Yeah. So I, I dated this girl named Allah, fell in love with this girl named Allah, and at one point she in Leningrad now St. Petersburg again. And she uh, finally invited me to pick her up at her house where she'd fallen over. She was no fun. And uh, I went to her apartment building, which one of these Stalin era, big, huge, flat, dull looking buildings. And when I went inside, I saw that the staircase was still not repaired from the bombing of the Second World War. Wow. And there was, you know, burn marks on the wall and things. I went, wow. The front of the building looked fine. Hmm. Once you step beyond the front, you saw the reality of how folks had to live. Mm -hmm. And that's what I told the boys. And so we, the album is about revolution. You know, we've got to change this. We've got to, the people have to take over. And, uh, 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 and of course, it had to be entertaining, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the ice show and all that kind of stuff. But uh, we created this show called Beat the Reaper, that, which now, you know, it came true two years ago. <clears throat> Beat the Reaper, for those who might not know it, is a game show in which uh, the contestant is injected with a mystery disease mm-hmm. and has 30 seconds to determine, to, to diagnose what it is so that our topless nurse, Judy, can come in and administer an antidote. <laughs> and, and, and Phil Austin, who is playing this character, P, I think his name was, uh, he goes farther than any contestant has ever gone before. And so he's given the really big disease. <laughs> and he can't guess what it is. He feels terrible. I, I think I'm gonna, I want to die. 
Oh, I'm sorry. You didn't beat the Reaper. Uh, Dr. What was his name? Dr. Filth of the Armenian Medical Association. Will you tell our contestant what he has contracted? This patient has the plague. And that was And then the audience suddenly realized what with the plague. She's got the plague, the plague, the plague. And a panic ensued. Right? And Phil runs out of the studio on the street where now the plague has affected everything. People are dying everywhere. And it's become like part of the of the entertainment, the society being covered by the news, you know. And and he gets into a, a cab to try to get out of the country, throws his clothes out of the cab because they're all running after him saying, touch me, touch me, I want to get it. Which I realize, I realize now is a metaphor of celebrity. Mm-hmm. See, it's a metaphor of celebrity. Uh, uh, it doesn't matter how bad you are. Yeah. If, if, you know, if you're more famous than I am, I want that. I want to touch you, mm-hmm. you know? And, 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 uh, and of course he escapes to the other side of the record in a way. Mm-hmm. So anyway, yeah, we, that, that was, that was the legacy that we, we left behind by being fearlessly predictive and very politically incorrect almost sure. all the time, all the sure. time. We, we, there's one cut that we can't play uh, from how can you be in two places at once when you're not anywhere at all, mm-hmm. which is called the American pageant. Mm-hmm. Because the American pageant song uses every bad word about minor- a minority. Oh, yes, right, yeah. In a yeah, lighthearted, comic, happy sense. Sure. Because what it's saying, of course, is sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And and in the song, we really tried to take the energy out of them. You know, we, yeah. we, we tried, to, but, but uh, America has certainly not come to grips with it yet. Not even yet. Right. Not even yet. <clears throat> I thought in my lifetime that we, we would, we'd be multi, multiracial uh, society, you know? Yeah. Nope, not yet. Uh, I don't think it'll happen during my lifetime. But I, I, I think it's at least beginning to manifest. Yeah. One hopes so. One hopes so. so. The, um, Taylor, I would like, you know, how we normally at the end of every episode, we just say, hey, give, give me two reasons to why to listen to this record. Give people instead maybe a two reasons, a couple sentences why this record is important to listen to in the Pantheon. Like, so they understand where this stands and what it represents. You should absolutely get a copy of this record because it's going to have a lot of really funny bits on it that you will enjoy, uh, including one long funny bit, which is the uh, Waiting for the Count of Monte Cristo, which is from a live performance from 1970, which they just recycled into the record. Um, it had never been published uh, to that point, mm-hmm. and it's very funny. They did it live, I think, at Columbia in New York City, um, and it's a great performance. Uh <laughs> Uh, but the whole album has got bits and pieces on it that are that will just kill you. They're very funny. Yeah. Um, and uh, you need to listen to it because uh, you are all fire sign completists, and you need to <laughs> listen to it. That's all. You must. You must. Well, now, so so instead of talking about uh, either everything you know is wrong or not insane, we're we're basically talking about our our newest album. Yeah, at this point, right. yeah. That's right. what we've ended up talking about, yes. Yeah, which is good because, again, uh, it incorporates a lot of the writing that you know you can also get in the 
the, which one is this one? Marching to Shibboleth, the big, big book of plays mm -hmm. by the Firesign Theater. Uh, Bear Manor Media has all the Firesign stuff. And I, actually, I just opened into uh, Hemlock Stones and the giant, the giant rat of Sumatra. Okay. Yes, everybody uh, needs to go to Fire Sale and buy Shibboleth, and everybody needs to go to Stand Up Records and buy uh, Dope Healer in the 70s. They're in print. Buy I them. I agree. I agree. Un unlike not uh, not insane. You can follow Phil at Firesign Phil on, on Twitter. I don't know how often you tweet. I, I never tweet, so I never know what to tell people, but you're there. Well, What's listen, if, if people want to get in touch with me, yes. uh, uh, I'm at phil.proctor at mac.com. Oh, there you the, go. The, 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 I keep the light on in the window for you. And planetproctor.com. Mm -hmm. Planetproctor.com. And you can hear me right now on uh, a podcast available on Facebook and everywhere good podcasts are sold called uh, Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show. And we interview people like John Goodman mm -hmm. and uh, Dave Osman, Harry Shearer, uh, uh, Tom Hartman, uh, Weird Al Yankovic, Penn Jillette. We've really been having a lot of fun talking to people who, are, you know, are not only Firesign fans, but are friends. Yeah. Friends of ours. And, and getting some extraordinary uh, insight into their, like I tried to give today, into how they got to the point of their success you know, and, and 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 how Firesign may have also influenced them just by telling them you could be crazy. Mm -hmm. It's okay. There are other people who think like you do. There are other people who who you know who are not insane. Mm -hmm. So go for it. You know, <laughs> it's liberating. <laughs> um, Taylor's not going to promote it himself, so I'm just going to tell you guys to go to FujiPuzzleBox.blogspot.com. Is that oh, the freaking address? No, yes, yeah. you should you should listen to my show on WFMU. It's on the oh, yes. Sheena's Jungle Room streaming channel of WFMU, mm -hmm. and uh, it is named after my blog, Fuji Puzzle Box, and it's mm -hmm. on every Saturday morning. I gave the wrong Ooh. address. It's TaylorJessen.blogspot.com. I'm sorry, my brain is yep. misassumed. I'm I'm a moron. Um, I want to thank you again, both of you, for doing the show. Um, you are a moron, but you're a professional moron. Thank you. See, at least you appreciate that. At least somebody gives a shit. That's kind and, of and listen, before you sign off, Jason, your 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 lifestyle is changing now, isn't it? It is. It I is. Mean, this is an extraordinary uh, show that you've been doing, and Thank you. I know every time that I have any time to to watch or listen to it, I learn some extraordinary backstory. Thank you. You know about the development of comedy. And the, the role of uh, the of vinyl comedy in it, and you know the development of, of, of people's comic sensibilities, not just always from the perspective of the comedian himself, but right. people who worked with them or produced them or you know mm -hmm. slept with them, and and, <laughs> and, and I think it's it's very unique. And are you are you going to continue some kind of a of a broadcast uh, life with your? In the future, I mean, uh, my plan with this is, uh, I I'd like to continue to since it won't be a weekly affair anymore. I'd like to continue the the history of Fire Sign, and I'd like to continue the history of Monty Python that I've been doing with Andre Jackman, who produced all the Python albums. Right, because cool. they're it's a nice parallel to do do this with you guys, and uh, you know that with him, and then I, I have too many other podcasts to deal with anyway. So yeah, I won't <laughs> shut the fuck up. People, including Dan and Jay's Comedy Hour, which people should uh, check out only because uh, Phil is on one of our Christmas albums. He's also on the album that it has taken me 
three years to finish. It's still not done. It's a mm-hmm. uh, pandemic. I blame pande- pandemic. You're great on it. You're in it. Taylor, shit, I need to get you to record for it, too. Son That's of right. Forgetting. <laughs> See, these are the things before that hold go, me up. Before you go, before you leave, right. <laughs> right? Um, but either way, you guys can check out the Dan and Jay's Comedy Hour podcast. That's, you know... Uh yeah, I don't know. There we are. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm so no, you're popular. Fine. <laughs> they're, fine. they're calling me again because apparently my car warranty has run out. Oh shit! You oh, better no. call them. Back. Oh yeah. Awful. When I get off the when I get off the phone mm-hmm. off of this show, mm-hmm. I'm gonna call them back immediately yeah. and give them my social security number. Thank you. Okay? So I was gonna tell and you first thing to say. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and thank you guys for listening. And as always, have a good thing. Comedy on Vinyl is a production of Stolen Dress Entertainment. It is produced by Mike Warden and is hosted and edited by Jason Klom. Our theme song was composed and performed by Richard Levinson. You can email us at podcast at comedyonvinyl.com. You can also send snail mail to Stolen Dress Entertainment, P.O. Box 805, Burbank, California, 91503. Subscribe to Comedy on Vinyl on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you can find podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and write us a review. It helps. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Comedy on Vinyl, or find everything in one place at ComedyOnVinyl.com. A major portion of Comedy on Vinyl has been underwritten by Stand Up Records. Please visit StandUpRecords.com for all your comedy needs and tune in to the new Stand Up Records channel available on the Roku, where you can also find select episodes of this podcast. Visit StolenDress.com to listen to our other podcasts, watch videos, and imbibe freely of our multimedia content going back 15-plus years. Stolen Dress Entertainment. Hey, it's my turn. Ah!